Welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Michael Walker. I'm joined by Dahlia Gabriel. Dahlia, how are you doing? Hi, Michael. It's a beautiful day to scrape the bottom of the barrel of British politics and see what's lying there, which I believe is what we'll be doing today. But it is still always lovely to see you, even if this is even under these circumstances. First story. A rift seems to be opening up in the Tory party. On the one side are those who support the government's plan to deter asylum seekers from coming to the UK. They want to treat those who arrive here with cruelty, providing them only with cramped accommodation on floating prisons, scaring them with promises to deport them to Rwanda, and threatening to cut off all support if they don't comply. Then, on the other side, there are those who disagree. They think the government isn't going far enough. They want them to be even more cruel than they're currently being. Now, one of them is Tory Deputy Chairman Lee Anderson, fresh from telling asylum seekers yesterday to, quote, F off back to France. He appeared on Nigel Farage's GB News show, where he said this. It's your government, which you've been, you know, you've been there in the Commons since 2019. You have overseen this total failure. And you may use the F word. And Suella may talk about life sentences for dodgy solicitors. But isn't the truth of it, your party has completely and utterly failed everyone. Listen, Nigel, I'm not going to sit here and make excuses to anyone. This is out of control. We're, the, you know, we're in power at the moment. I'm, I'm uh, as you say, the deputy chair of the Conservative Party. We're in government and we have failed on this. There's, there's no doubt about it. You know, we said we're going to fix it. It is a failure. Look, we have got policies in place. And I know it's, it's a bit hard for the British public at the moment to to actually, you know, understand what we're trying to do with the Rwanda flights uh, and, and the changing legislation, the illegal migration bill. And it seems very slow. It's cumbersome. We're up against it, Nigel. Let's be honest. We've got the lefty lawyers. We've got the, the human rights campaigners. We've got the charities. Everything's against us. But no, it's, I'm not making excuses. It's slowing us down. You know, if the whole of Parliament and was behind us in this, I, I'm sure this would have got through by now. But look, I'm not going to sit here, Nigel, and make excuses. It makes me sick. Every time I see a boat come across the channel, it makes me furious when I see them put in hotels and on barges. Everyone's against us apart from the billionaire-owned press and the billionaire-owned TV channels like GB News, who Lee Anderson was talking to there. I mean, I do find it so frustrating listening to that kind of argument where he says it's out of control. Now, migration in this country isn't out of control by any measure, right? If you look at which countries get more asylum applications than us? It's nearly all of the all of Europe, if you look at a per capita basis. Now, France has double the number of asylum applications. Germany, um, more than that, right? So the idea that there's so many people coming here, no country, no reasonable country could possibly deal with this. It's out of control. No, there are lots of reasonable countries who deal with a lot more asylum applications than we do, um, but they just process people a little bit quicker. So in Germany, they process people much quicker than we do. That means they're not putting up loads and loads of people in hotels, which is a very inefficient way to run your, your your migration system. Now, of course, it's not every day you see a pretty senior Tory um, come out and say, we've failed. And on BBC Breakfast, Anderson's remarks were put to Immigration Minister Robert Jenrick. One of your own team, your deputy chair, Lee Anderson, has said, we have failed on this. Do you agree with him? No, I don't. We've put in place a number of things over the course of uh, the last few months, which are already seeing dividends. But this is an incredibly complex international challenge. The UK has the most comprehensive plan of any European country to tackle this. You see that in the deals we've struck with France. You see it in the work we've done with Albania that's achieved a 90% reduction in the number of Albanians crossing the channel in small boats. And you see it today, in fact, in the partnership that we've struck with Turkey, a key ally, whereby we will be sharing intelligence and people and technology to tackle the supply chain of boats and engines and the flow of migrants before they even get close to the United Kingdom. That's the kind of approach that we're looking to take, whereby we're a strategic partner of any country that shares our determination to tackle this issue. So there's a question, we're going to discuss it actually in a lot more depth later in the show about the the morality, I suppose, of making deals with more authoritarian governments to try and stop migrants traveling through them to try and get to the destination they want to get to, right? There's a moral problem there. I also think what he said is just politically kind of ridiculous, right? There are already many deals with Turkey. They were done by the EU. So the EU pays the, pays the Turkish government millions and millions of pounds to try and stop migrants crossing its border. The idea that suddenly Turkey is going to dramatically shift its policy because Britain has now got involved seems completely bizarre. The, the, the Turkish government don't know if the people crossing their borders want to get to Germany, France or the UK, 
right? The EU are already incredibly committed to stopping people going through Turkey to Europe. And yes, um, to any raving Remainers out there, that's because most EU countries are just as xenophobic as Britain, right? They're just as committed to keeping migrants out, to lowering those migrant flows of people coming to Europe because they want to escape persecution or for a better life. So I just don't see what practical difference a deal that the UK makes with Turkey can possibly make. It doesn't stack up to me. Of course, it's not just agreements with countries like Turkey that Jenrik claims will stop the boats. He explained more of the government's thinking on Sky. Why is the backlog so huge? Why does it take one to three years to process somebody here in the UK and it takes six months in Germany? That's the nub of the problem, isn't it? It isn't the nub of the problem, but it is an important thing that we have to get right. I say that because there are those, such as the Labour Party, and you heard from Yvette Cooper earlier, saying that just if you process claims quickly, that will fix it. I think that's a naive view. That's what they did when they were last in office. And that just encourages more people to come. But it is right that we make the Home Office as efficient as possible. And the good news is that we're succeeding. We've increased the number of decision makers to 1,800, and we're on course by the 1st of September to increase that to 2,500. That will be almost doubling the size of the organisation. Productivity is rising. And the last eight weeks of data show record levels of decision making. So I'm very confident that we will make good on the promise that we made in December to clear the legacy backlog by the end of the year and to put the whole system on a more sustainable footing. But as I say, that, that is important, but it's not sufficient. You have to abut that good work with a proper strategy to stop people coming in the first place. That's where the Labour Party falls short because they just don't have that plan and I'm not sure they even want to stop the boats uh, in that regard. That's why the Rwanda policy matters. That's why making the UK a less attractive destination matters, such as by putting uh, people in rudimentary and uh, decent accommodation, but not luxurious forms of accommodation. Now, that sounded a bit like an admission, didn't it? She's asking, why don't you get the backlog down for migrants? Now, he says, oh, we're, we're aiming to, we're intending to, but of course, it's, it's huge compared to where it was. And he says, well, if we were to just get the backlog down, that would probably encourage more people to come here. We're only going to get the backlog down when we have installed so many other cruel policies that if uh, a migrant knows that they might have a decision made quickly, they will then um, decide, oh, but there's too many other horrible things about the, the country, which means I won't go there. It's essentially this whole policy of, of putting people on barges, performative cruelty. Um, Robert Jenrick was also asked to respond to Anderson's remarks on Times Radio. We'll do whatever is necessary, ultimately, to defend our borders and to bring order to okay. our In asylum system. Right. Whatever necess necessary, including leaving the European Convention on Human Rights, potentially, if you feel you have to. Well, we, we will do whatever is required, take whatever necessary action is needed. But the, the point I think I've tried to make to you is that we're very confident that the arrangements that we've put in place with Rwanda are in accordance with our international law obligations. And I uh, take heart from the fact that the courts so far have broadly agreed with that. And I hope that the Supreme Court will enable us to move forward with our Rwanda partnership later this year or okay. at the beginning of next year. That was a government minister once again refusing to rule out withdrawing the UK from the European Convention on Human Rights. If we did leave, that would leave us in a group which includes only two nations, Russia, who were kicked out after they invaded Ukraine, and Greece, who left in 1970 after a military coup. Greece rejoined once democracy was restored. Of course, even if the UK does manage to get the Rwanda policy up and running, it's unclear it will serve as the kind of deterrent the Tories want it to. Rwanda has said it can process just a thousand people in the course of the five-year trial of the scheme. If that goes ahead, it's just 200 people a year. Now, given thousands of asylum seekers are risking their lives to cross the channel, I think that's a risk they'll be willing to take. Oh, we're suddenly going to... We're not going to try and go to the UK where we speak the language, where we have connections, whereby we might be able to have, have a job and a decent standard of living because there's a one in a hundred chance that we might get sent to Rwanda. It doesn't seem um, like something which is going to deter people who are already risking their lives to get here. So to summarize, we've got meaningless deals with Turkey, performative cruelty on barges and empty threats to deport people to Rwanda. But there is one more key plank to the Tories' policy on asylum seekers, which Jenrik was asked about on Good Morning Britain. All is of its own. part of that deterrent painting over Disney characters in um, deportation centres? Did you sanction that? And in one case, I think it cost about £1,500. Is that 
in your view, a good use of taxpayers' money as a deterrent? Well, what we did do was to change the signage at the initial places where people first arrive in the United Kingdom to make sure that they were appropriate and that we had made it clear to people, adults, that they had broken the law, that entering the UK illegally is the wrong thing to do. But and there that are they'll children, face serious of consequences. And in, so in painting the over characters, is that something that you think is part of a, it, a sensible, humane system it, to... Um, well, I, I, with respect, I don't think you judge compassion on this issue by the decoration at a particular centre that people first arrive in. But it was obviously important enough to spend to money on painting it over, so it must well, have been this is an a issue. Very, this is a small element of, of a broader piece of work to change the signage at those locations. But the real test of compassion here is stopping the boats altogether. And I have worked incredibly hard in the last nine months to do that because I'm absolutely disgusted as a parent to see young people, children, being put into small boats, being exploited by people smugglers and human traffickers. And it's by breaking the business model of the people smugglers that will protect those young people, not by getting into debates about decoration at particular places. I would hate to be Robert Jenrick's kids because he seems to think that compassion towards children means painting over Disney pictures because he thinks that might deter you looking for a better life. Like the idea that that represents compassion. I mean, Dahlia, how would you, how would you respond to that? There are only two words really to describe this government's approach to migration, to displacement, and particularly what we've seen over the past 24 hours. And it is cruelty and dysfunction. I think you are completely right, Michael, there to point out that many of the flagship policies, the policies that the government have been doing the most press on, have been spending the most money on, are policies that will ne- will not actually do the thing that they say that it's going to do. And obviously, I don't want those policies to achieve their goals because I don't want to see uh, a closed border approach to asylum seekers and refugees. But even if that is what you want, you are completely right to point out that things like the Rwanda policy, it doesn't work. Even if it went ahead, you are completely right to point out that only 200 people a year over a five-year period could actually be processed under that scheme. That is completely disproportionate to the amount of press and the amount that the government has put this at the front and centre of its political identity. Similarly with the barge, which is again this other... Um, this other sort of flagship policy that the government has poured so much into making it central to their public face of migration policy. It's a dysfunctional policy. Uh, You can't, essentially, you can't send people back to European countries that they pass through. There's no return agreement. You can't send people back to the country that they've come from because it's against the human rights convention, which we are still in by the skin of our teeth. And you, so essentially all you're going it, to, a, it's a policy that's essentially a road to nowhere. And I think it's really important to highlight the inherent dysfunction to these policies because it shows that this is not just cruelty that is a byproduct of trying to achieve a particular goal. The cruelty and the dysfunction are the point. They are the point of these policies and they are the point of the government's public Cer- you know, public ceremony around these policies. And so what is the point of this theatre of cruelty and dysfunction? There's so many different angles to this, but what I would say are the two concrete reasons why the government keeps pursuing this very spectacular but ultimately quite hollow programme of cruelty is to lower the expectations of the British people, to lower them both morally in terms of what we can mor- what we morally accept but also to lower expectations in terms of the ability of a government to actually function because when these things are so clearly spectacular failures and so clearly don't make sense you can see just as we saw with Lee Anderson there then they can start to turn against the lefty lawyers the human rights campaigners even the labor party which is laughable given that the labor party have barely opposed any of these kind of measures. Uh, And so that kind of ability to lower the British people's expectations about what a government can and should do is ultimately at the heart of why they are pursuing these completely dead-end policies. 
I also think the aim is to produce a scared and spiteful population, to create a population that get their hope purely from the misery of other people rather than from anything that they can hope for themselves. And so if we're going to talk about the politics of this, you know, obviously it goes without saying that the sheer cruelty of this and the sheer the, the the moral shame that we hold as a nation for doing this to other human beings that's obvious but when we actually look at the politics the domestic politics of why the government is pursuing this agenda it's to lower people's expectations and it's to produce a spiteful and scared british population and unfortunately i can't say that they haven't succeeded in that because as i said before the labor party the main opposition force in this country um, have essentially gone out of their way to say that they're not going to change anything, that all they're going to do is sort of tighten some screws on the sinking ship that is this country's moral, political and economic fabric. Lee Anderson isn't the only Tory who thinks the government isn't going far enough on asylum. On Monday, Rishi Sunak released his video on his government's migration plan. Here are five things I'm doing to stop the boats. First, I'm bringing in new laws that will mean if you come to the UK illegally, you can't stay, no matter how hard you try. Second, I've secured a deal with France that will help stop the boats at source before they cross the channel. I've also negotiated a deal with Albania, which has already helped us bring down crossings from there by 90%. Third, I've increased raids by 50% to clamp down on illegal workers. Fourth, I'm ending the farce of illegal migrants being put up in hotels by the taxpayer. Fifth, I'm ensuring that the only way to come to the UK for asylum will be through safe and legal routes. I know stopping the boats is a priority for the British people, and I'm leaving no stone unturned to get it done. That was completely dystopian. That was very Black Mirror. Um... Of course, there aren't safe legal routes to the UK from pretty much anywhere. Uh, from Ukraine, there are. From Hong Kong, there are. There are supposedly safe and legal routes from Afghanistan, but they're not really working, so no one can really use them. So this whole idea that people should get here as asylum seekers via safe legal routes, they don't exist. Let's go to another Tory. On Times Radio, former party chairman Jake Berry was asked about Sunak's approach versus Lee Anderson's. Lee Anderson has chosen his words uh, carefully. One one presumes because he, you know, the, he's quite candid. He it's not it's not a one off. This is how he speaks. Rishi Sunak um, expresses a different sentiment, a different way. So, who is the current Conservative Party? Would you say is it Lee Anderson or is it Rishi Sunak? <laughs> Good question. I think what I would say is that we're a broad church because I'm neither Lee, Lee Anderson nor Rishi Sunak, but I'm a proud member of the Conservative Party and the Conservative MP. I think people like me, and I like to think myself a bit, speak to, you know, our own voters in the Red Wall and the frustration that people feel uh, with, uh, you know, with this particular issue. But I also commend, you know, the Prime Minister making dealing with uh, the asylum issue as one of his top five priorities. Of course, Rishi Sunak has pledged to the British people and to me and to my voters that mm. he will stop the votes by January. So um, good luck. With that, and I will give them all the support I can to make sure we deliver it. Dahlia, the Conservatives are a broad church. They include people who want to put migrants on barges and paint over cartoons in case they might put a smile on the child of an asylum or of an asylum seeker child's face. Um, and the other wing of the broad church who think that that's not cruel enough. They want to be even crueler. I have to say, I don't know about you, Michael, but I, I find it really difficult to like sit here and have a civilized conversation when we are just watching people you know what sitting in a country that is like built of stolen wealth and built of the industries that are causing displacement and to see people so casually talking you know our, our MPs I mean not my MPs other people's MPs because I would never I don't associate with people like that to see them just speaking so cavalierly about the attempts to survive in an impossible system and um, that this country had a huge hand in creating. I mean, I just, it's so difficult to sit here and have what feels like a reasonable conversation, but I'm going to try and do it anyway. Look, there is no material difference between the politics of a Lee Anderson and a Rishi Sunak. They just use different language. Lee Anderson says, fuck off back to France. Rishi Sunak says, 
we've created a new deal with France to, to do X, Y, Z. It's the same thing. It's just delivered in a less in a blunter package. But the materiality of it, what it actually means to asylum seekers, to displaced people who are suffering as a result of these policies, it doesn't matter what package it's delivered in. What matters is the, the effect of it. And so I don't think that Rishi Sunak gets to hold the moral high ground above someone like Lee Anderson. What I would say is that the Conservative Party of today is the party that is putting into practice the kind of discourse and language and politics that was articulated by people like Nick Griffin in the 2000s, by Nigel Farage. I don't think if Nigel Farage himself had been elected as prime minister, he would have been able to successfully do as implement as much of his program as the Conservatives have been able to do. So that is what the Conservative Party are. And I don't think that you can be a member of the Conservative Party or be a Conservative Party voter without have, without understanding that that is the soul of your party. And it's always kind of been the soul of the Conservative Party. You know, Enoch Powell may have been sidelined at his time eventually, but his spirit has always been present in the Conservative Party. I think that the grip that that kind of mean and cruel and sort of bloodthirstiness, that we that kind of bloodthirsty racism um, maybe was not as close to the surface as it, you know, maybe this is the closest it's been to the surface in a while, but that spirit has already, has always been there. And so I think it's very, it's very laughable to see people splitting hairs about between Lee Anderson and Rishi Sunak when the end result is the same. It's just that one's wearing a suit and one's wearing, you know, a bad polo shirt. Let's go on to our next story. 41 people are presumed dead after a migrant boat sank in the Mediterranean. That number includes at least three children. The tragedy was discovered after four survivors reached the Italian island of Lampedusa on Wednesday morning after spending several days adrift at sea with no food or water. The three men and a woman were rescued by a Maltese carrier ship and later handed to the Italian authorities. The asylum seekers had been travelling in a seven-metre-long boat which left Sfax in Tunisia last Wednesday, but which, according to the survivors, was hit by a large wave just hours after departing. Almost all the passengers, who were thought to have been from sub-Saharan African countries, were thrown into the water where they remained for hours. Only 15 on board were wearing life jackets, including the four who were rescued. No bodies have yet been recovered. Sfax is a popular starting point for migrants seeking a better life in Europe and is just 80 miles from Lampedusa. But though relatively short, the journey is incredibly dangerous, with migrants often crossing in small, motorless metal boats. Despite that, migrant traffic through the area has recently increased, with Italian authorities and refugee action groups having rescued around 2,000 people arriving on the island in recent days. That includes 57 people rescued on Saturday by the Italian Coast Guard after their boat sank. The survivors were pulled from the violent seas off the coast of Lampedusa. Two bodies, one of a child, were also recovered. In a separate incident, 34 migrants were rescued by the Italian authorities after they became stranded on a Lampedusa cliffside following a shipwreck. Amongst them were two pregnant women and a child. A further two shipwrecks were reported by the Italian Coast Guard last week. 30 people remain missing. According to Italian authorities, almost 93,000 migrants have arrived in the country this year. That's more than double the 45,000 who had arrived by this point last year. And of that total, more than half set off from Tunisia. In recent months, Tunisia has seen a wave of racism against black Africans living there. Many of the 21,000 undocumented sub-Saharan migrants living in Tunisia were fired from their jobs and evicted from their accommodation overnight, leaving them homeless. Others were picked up by authorities and dumped at the Libyan border in the middle of the desert. That was after the country's president, Saeed, announced a crackdown on black migrants. The repression has led to an increase in the number of migrants crossing from Sfax, and as a result, the EU has offered Tunisia more money to try to keep migrants out of Europe. Just three weeks ago, Al Jazeera reported this. Specific aid that Ursula von der Leyen announced on Sunday included 65 million euros in EU funding to modernise Tunisian schools. On migration, von der Leyen said, we need an effective cooperation more than ever. The EU will work with Tunisia on an anti-smuggling partnership, will increase coordination in search and rescue operations, and both sides also agreed to cooperate on border management. 
Von der Leyen pledged 100 million euros for those efforts, a figure she had already announced on the leader's previous visit. Now, this all fits a familiar pattern. The EU pays authoritarian states who can operate more brutally than EU members. In exchange, they keep asylum seekers away from the bloc. Now, that puts pressure on the politics of the usually poorer country as the bottleneck of migrants begins. It also allows the authoritarian country to practice a form of political extortion. They know that the worse a migration crisis gets, the more leverage they have. And stuck in the middle are migrants, voiceless people just seeking a better life. Earlier today, I spoke to Richard Brody, an activist in Italy who works alongside migrants in a community centre in Palermo, Sicily. I started by asking him to what extent last week's shipwreck was out of the ordinary. We don't know how many shipwrecks happen. You often find a lot of numbers about how many tens of thousands of people have died over the decades. But the real point is we don't know. Because most of the time, or much of the time, there might be shipwrecks where there aren't survivors. In this case, not only are there a few survivors, but also Sea-Watch, one of the most uh, important and active NGOs in the Mediterranean, one of their spotter planes spotted the ship um, beforehand. So we, we have some information, but it's worth bearing in mind how many times shipwrecks might happen where we don't know what's going on. Obviously, um, I hope people remember at the end of February, there was the shipwreck in Calabria at Cutro, in which almost 100 people uh, lost their lives and their bodies washed up onto the sea and were recovered in, in rescue operations. Again, Often it might happen that there are no bodies that are recovered and we have uh, much, mess, much less information. How are these tragedies received in Italy? I mean, I know the politics there is quite right wing at the moment. Is there still any kind of public outpouring of sympathy? There's definitely public outcry. Um, I think the difficulty is understanding um, how that can be channeled and who it's channeled against. And I think this is really the same in Italy and in Europe and in the UK, we see the same thing with uh, crossings across the channel, which is a lot of the time um, these, these tragedies get reported as something like natural disasters in, that were inevitable that people drowned at sea. Instead of seeing them as direct results of policies historic, that are created historically and are continually reinforced, with this shipwreck in particular, it's even clearer because these were people of Tunisia. It seems that most of them, if maybe all of them, were from West Africa, and the survivors certainly are. That should be put into the context of what's been happening in Tunisia over the last few months, in which there have been not only pogroms against uh, Western East Africans, but that's actually been incited by the government. So over the last few years, the Tunisian government has been getting more and more dictatorial clamping down on freedom of speech, now inciting racism. You might expect that in reaction to that, um, the EU or the Italian government would be condemning what's going on. With the new right-wing government, there's actually been an acceleration with EU backing to making a deal with Tunisia. And that's effectively what's happened, just as Italy made a deal with Libya in 2017 under the Democratic Party, um, just as Greece made a deal with Turkey in 2016-17. Um, now there's a big deal with Tunisia, in which essentially the EU and Italy are paying large amounts of money to the Tunisian government to create a racist system of clamping down on emigration on their part and immigration to Europe. The response to you would be that this is all very tragic, but if you're opposed to countries such as Tunisia sort of enforcing EU border policies and stopping people emigrating from their shores, and if you're very much for um, European Coast Guard sort of rescuing all of these ships which find themselves in distress, then there will be no deterrent to, for, for coming to Europe. Lots more people presumably will come. Lots of people do want to come to Europe, and people would argue um, that European politics would struggle to deal with that. There already is a far-right government in Italy. So, I mean, do, do you see a way forward whereby there can be a more humane way of dealing with migration to Europe, which doesn't end up with, you know, backlashes worse than what we've already seen? I think there really is. I really believe there is. Because let's take Tunisia. It's, it's a really important um, situation in terms of Italy, right? So I'm in Sicily. We're very near to Tunisia. There are strong cultural links. There are strong family links 
right? There are a lot of Tunisians who have created families, stabilized themselves in Italy, and they have relatives in Tunisia as well. Now, those people should be able to come over with family visas. That's what we'd imagine would be normal in a humane world, a humane system. You apply for a visa, you come over to see your dad, your mom, your cousin, your brother, whatever. That's not what happens. Right? There are visas are allowed perhaps in extreme cases. There are minors involved, vulnerable people, but even then it can be really, really difficult. And essentially you have to be middle class and then everything becomes a bit easier. We don't allow people normal, safe routes to travel, right? That's, that's what's going on here. The mass death in the Mediterranean is about blocking, is, about, is a story about Europe consistently blocking any possibility for people to choose a different way of coming here, even in circumstances which any reasonable, sane, rational person would say are good reasons for people to travel around the world. What happens to people when they do arrive in, in Italy? So asylum seekers, obviously, we've seen these tragic shipwrecks, probably or presumably more people do, do make it to, to Europe. What happens when someone arrives in Italy? If people arrive by, by boat, um, there's, I mean, there's, Italy has developed a, a very kind of complex system of how people can arrive here, where people are put into hostels. Um, probably what's important to remember is a lot of people who arrive in Italy want to be moving on to elsewhere in Europe or even to the UK. Um, again, acts of movement, which I think really any normal person would support people wanting to get to somewhere where they're more likely to get a job or where they can speak the language. People who speak French wanting to go to France, for example, or people from uh, former British colonies wanting to get to Britain. It's quite reasonable. Um, instead, there is a European-wide system in which we should include the UK in that still, which is about blocking people's freedom of movement and trying to put them in places that they don't want to be. Right. So it's this constant series of acts of injustice um, against people who really just want to be left alone. When it comes to migration into Italy, I mean, how much is this a problem of the rest of the EU? So I, I can understand why in Italian politics they might say, well, we have to face um, or we're at the front of migration into the EU purely because of sort of geographical luck um, where Italy happens to be. And the problem is that countries such as as Germany and richer countries in Northern Europe aren't pulling their weight. To what extent is, is that a critique that's made in Italy and to what extent is it a justified one? It's a critique that gets made a lot and it's important to bear in mind how much it gets made and how much it gets politicised. I can see why it seems reasonable, particularly from the perspective of Northern Europe, uh, to say, oh no, we shouldn't be blaming Spain and Italy and Greece, the countries which maybe have worse economic situations, situations that may have been being created by the European, uh, North European focus system in many ways. We shouldn't be blaming them, southern countries, for uh, not being able to deal with migrants coming in or people on the move. What's worth bearing in mind is that's something which is very much recognised at an EU level. So vast amounts of the funding that is available in Italy for uh, asylum seeker hostels, for helping with translation, medical care, and all sorts of things comes from the EU. Right? The EU already does uh, grant huge amounts of funding to Italy um, in order to protect people's rights, in order to guarantee the services that should be guaranteed. Um, the problem is that those services then don't get guaranteed because the political atmosphere in Italy is constantly about saying, we need to be pushing people away, we need to be getting rid of people, it's not about guaranteeing their rights and services. And really, I think the conversation that should be happening on a European level is about how to give people on the move greater autonomy, right? How to stop treating people um, always as vulnerable people, infantilizing them, putting them in hostels, keeping them in um, semi-prisons, but instead how to enable people who are arriving in Europe to create the lives that they that they want to create, and I think that should be seen as a cross European problem, right? Um, it shouldn't be parcelled off into each country doing its own thing. 
Unfortunately, the, the narrative, the one that you correctly saying that happens in Italy about saying, oh, it's an EU problem, Italy is the victim in this situation, doesn't get us anywhere. All it does is really help sovereignist parties uh, to do well at the elections. Then usually they just go back on their promises about sovereignism anyway. Let's go straight on to our next story. Zach Goldsmith is a former Tory environment minister who now sits in the House of Lords. Yet this true blue conservative has suggested that at the next election, he might vote Labour. My concern about the Labour Party at the moment, and I don't say this as a tribal politician, because I'm not a tribal politician, is I think there is a blind spot on the natural environment. So everything, when, when the Labour Party thinks environment, when it talks about the environment, it's thinking carbon and taxation, regulation, and all the things that go with that. And the, the simple truth is there is no pathway to net zero. There's no solution to climate change that does not involve nature. Massive efforts to protect and restore the natural world. And at the moment, I'm not hearing any of that from the Labour Party. If I do, if there's a real commitment, mm. now the kind of commitment, frankly, that we saw when Boris Johnson was the leader, then I would be very tempted to throw my weight behind that party and support them in any way I could. Incidentally, I would support them anyway uh, in, in, in their efforts on these issues because it's the only thing that matters. So if Labour started talking more about nature, Zach Goldsmith would support them in any way possible. Zach Goldsmith is an ally of Boris Johnson. So some people have read this as just sort of factional wrangling. Boris Johnson doesn't like Rishi Sunak, so some of his allies are sort of lashing out against his, his government. Um, despite that though, Dali, did you find his, his comment at all interesting? Zach Goldsmith is a kind of interesting one. He's very much an outlier in many ways, not, not in key significant ways, but in, in many ways from the Conservative um, within the Conservative Party, you know, he's kind of always had this thread of of a kind of environmentalism that is very much articulated as sort of localism and essentially environmentalism without politics, which famously is just gardening. And it's, he kind of reminds me of Charles, you know, the king. Um, is he the third? Charles the third, a little bit in that sense, which is this kind of nostalgia and pastoral fondness um, that can sometimes look like a climate politics, but is actually kind of bereft of any meaningful analysis or willingness to take action on the root causes of change. And seeing climate change not as a political and economic tragedy that's going to destroy the lives or and livelihoods of millions of people, particularly in the global south, but rather seeing it as an injury against this kind of abstract nature, this kind of pure nature that has been corrupted by human beings, which is obviously a kind of way of conceptualizing nature that is sort of invented by colonialism, because it's this idea of there's, you know, this pure natural land, and it's, you know, the white bourgeoisie, the British um, elite who know how to look after that, that land and therefore need to take sovereignty away from indigenous people or people who live on that land in order to protect it. And that's the kind of tradition that Zach Goldsmith comes from. Uh, and he, you know, he joined the party at, during David Cameron's time. And um, before that, he had kind of positioned himself as a sort not really a, with any particular party. He was the editor of this magazine called The Ecologist, which was he was made the editor by his dad, who set up the magazine, classic rich boy uh, nonsense. But that was a magazine that was very much about talking about ecological issues, but from a kind of apolitical perspective, which in my view, again, is just kind of gardening. And so he kind of comes into David Cameron's, you know, party, Conservative Party, as an attempt to move the party's reputation away from this nasty party thing, this nasty party brand, which was obviously David Cameron's very short-lived um, vision of what the Conservative Party could win on the basis of, of course, the illusion of that. And it was just an illusion, but the Conservatives have very much abandoned even that branding exercise to appear um, not like the nasty party and have fully invested in a politics of nastiness. So this, but this kind of, you know, it, it sort of runs through Zach Goldsmith's career um, but I think it's very important that we don't see it as a climate justice politics. And I don't think Zach Goldsmith would consider it a climate justice politics. It comes much more from that sort of little C conservative, conservationist, nature above everything and sort of decoupling nature from the humans and the societies that live through it, that, that live on nature, you know, us, and seeing nature as sort of this abstracted thing that needs to be protected um, rather than looking at climate justice as a holistic rewiring of our system to stop 
big businesses, big oil companies extracting resources and extracting labor and polluting our our climate and destroying our ecosystems, destroying our food systems because of the impact that's going to have on us as a society and the way in which that's going to impact the poor and people in the global south the most harshly. So I think that that is sort of the context for why Goldsmith would say something like this. But I think that it's very much encapsulated by the fact that he says, you know, why are we always talking about carbon taxes and, you know, carbon and not talking about nature? Well, that tells me that this is not a serious climate politics. And this is coming from a pretty still little c conservative um, mentality that I think can be spoken to by the climate movement, but it really isn't part of what I would consider a climate justice sort of politics. I do agree with you that I think that this is just pretty much posturing in order to win some factional points within the party. But unfortunately, the kind of conservative party that Zach Goldsmith represents, which is looking kinder, but being the same, having the same soul, no one cares in the conservative party about that kind of approach. That's gone. That's old news. That that lived from 2010 to 2015 and it was done, boy. It's over. <laughs> so I don't think that there's going to be much stock in, in that kind of conservatism that's represented by Zach Goldsmith. I agree with a bunch of what you say, but I do think there is an important element of, of, of many issues, and I think climate probably above all else, whereby it is important to have a coalition which does span people with all sorts of politics. Like what we don't want is a situation where like in the United States, where the Republicans deny climate change, the Democrats are in favor of climate action, and then the whole thing just swings at every election. Like I feel like to build a, a sustainable and really solid coalition behind climate politics, it is important that climate activists or the Labour Party or whoever can speak in both a way which is sort of left-coded and right-coded. And so if you can appeal to people who might want climate action on the basis of supporting nature, then you absolutely should lean into that. So the idea of sort of like rewilding, I'm very into rewilding. Now that can sort of speak to very much a small C conservatism. And I absolutely um, think, you know, climate activists should be doing that and politicians should be doing that. And I think, you know, it, probably it should be somewhat celebrated that Zach Goldsmith is sort of willing to vote. I, I you know, I don't like the guy, right? He ran an Islamophobic campaign against Sadiq Khan. I think he's an asshole, right? But if you are trying to build a sort of long-term coalition to fight an existential threat, you are going to need to make some strange alliances. And I think this is probably one of those instances. I wince a little bit when it's sort of like love of nature that's kind of colonialist. I feel like maybe that's doing the opposite thing, which is to sort of say, oh no, you're from a different team. You can't be part of the coalition. I mean, how would you respond to that, Dahlia? I see what you say. And I think particularly, you know, the, the ground on which we can make an alliance is probably the stuff around local, like local economies, because some kind of element of localism is going to have to be part of a climate, just like climate solution. My worry about the sort of protecting nature thing is that what that has translated into, and you can see this, you know, in a lot of particularly if you're looking at like anti-deforestation or like conservation charities, where you will see that there will be, for example, a protected rainforest or a protected sort of part, piece of land, something that has been identified as something that needs to be protected for biodiversity reasons. And you will have this mentality that like the only people who can be stewards of that land are like, people who look like Zach Goldsmith or people who are the head of conservationist NGOs. And you see people who have been custodians of that land and who have been custodians for generations um, being literally forced off of that land, displaced off of that land in the name of protecting it. And so because there is that very alive legacy of conservationist wildlife politics that's where my worry is, is I think it can sound like a very kind of like, oh, well, we can all, of course, we can all get on board with this idea of protecting nature from oil companies and protecting it from, you know, mining companies and all of this. But when you're set, what, what was a red flag to me, what made me nervous was that he situated protecting nature as something separate from tackling oil and gas, like oil and gas companies. You know, he said, why are you focusing on taxing and carbon and not on nature. To me, that was a red flag to like, oh, we're going to go into this whole conservationist politics that has had very, very, not only disastrous effects for indigenous people and people who live on the land that gets, 
who get displaced off that land in the name of protecting it, but has also actually been bad for the environment because often the kinds of knowledge systems and stewardship systems that have maintained that land for generations gets lost because it literally gets forced off by big NGOs, governments in the name of climate policy. You know, that's why it's a kind of greenwashing practice. That is something, you know, that's not something that I'm inventing. That is something that happens now. Um, and it's not something that's just historic. It happens now. It's a kind of central pillar of a lot of, you know, some of the the really not very good sort of so-called green initiatives of the World Bank. You know, the Red Plus campaign is a great example of this. It's an example of indigenous knowledge systems and societies being destroyed in the name of protecting nature, which is bad for climate and bad for society. So that when I heard him putting fighting carbon and protecting nature in opposition to one another, I was like, that's what you're signaling to, which is not the true for everyone. But that is a connection that exists and is very much, you know, the kind of norm amongst elite so-called climate politics. Yeah, I mean, I think we probably do disagree a bit on strategy. I, I, I recognize what you're saying. I mean, I suppose for me, this is one reason why it was silly for Keir Starmer to say he doesn't like tree huggers, because I think actually the notion of liking trees uh, is, is pretty broad um, across the country. So uh, Keir Starmer was making a kind of yimby argument, I think, yes, in my backyard saying, you know, we want motorways, we want trains, we want houses. I want all those. Well, I don't want motorways, but I want trains and houses. So screw the tree huggers. But I think actually you can very easily have a politics which builds stuff which has you know, solid climate action, which really values nature, and which I think it would make sense to sort of be offering. Final story. It's not hard to feel depressed when covering the politics of immigration in Britain, but not much gets me more down than the success the Tories have had in using asylum seekers as a wedge to divide working people. That was on full display in this Jeremy Vine show debate between commentators Carol Malone and Chris Bambridge. They are not entitled to live in four-star hotels and live a life of virtual luxury. And please don't say they're not no luxurious. No one is living in a four-star hotel. Can I, can I, no yes, one. yes, they are. No, Lie, not. yes, they are. No yes, one they is are. living I've in a four-star hotel. I'm sorry, but they are. And you can keep repeating that, but and it's a lie. They anyone are. is entitled to decent accommodation. They've got decent that, accommodation. No, it's on not. Them. Yes, Even they the have. oil worker who commented lived there when it was only one to a room said it wasn't they're decent accommodation. They're not entitled to luxury. No. They're entitled All right. to This is not luxury. Okay. Now we're going to come back to more of that clip in a moment. There's someone who sort of calls in. It's very interesting. First of all, though, I, I do really want to take a moment to debunk what Carol Malone said there. She said, it is a luxury. It's a luxury that these people are living in, or the conditions they're living in are luxurious. Um, Carol Malone did say one true thing there. She, she has written about the issue of asylum seekers in hotels. That doesn't necessarily give her expertise, but she has. Um, in July, she wrote a story in The Express with this headline, Free SIGs for Migrants. Nothing for Britain's homeless. How is that right, Carol Malone? Now, that headline, I think, is the definition of divide and rule. Um, in the piece, she wrote this. What's inhumane is that while we're busting a gut and paying for economic migrants to live here with free board and lodging, 24-hour access to doctors and nurses, free travel into towns and cities. This week, migrants were being ferried into towns around Essex to buy cigarettes with taxpayers' cash. We have 271,000 homeless people in this country who get absolutely nothing. They're left to fend for themselves while those coming here illegally, many having dumped their papers before getting here, are getting each and every little thing they need. So that's Carol saying, or Carol Malone, saying asylum seekers get each and every little thing they need. Now, is that really true? Like, I didn't believe it when I read it, but let's look at some evidence. I spoke, obviously, I'm on a recent show about the experience of a man I knew going through the asylum system and how completely awful it was. He was certainly not getting each and everything he need, needed, very far from it. Something more social scientific, though. Let's go to the organization Migrant Voice. They've put together a report based on extensive interviews with asylum seekers currently living in hotels. They report this. Poor quality food described by many as almost inedible and smelling rancid, coupled with a lack of facilities and money to enable them to prepare anything for themselves, has left many with exacerbated physical and mental health problems. Cramped accommodation and a lack of privacy over extended periods of time has increased the difficulties faced Facing many of the asylum seekers to whom we have spoken, some have had to share rooms with up to 10 others from different backgrounds and cultures, all with differing habits, sleep patterns, and personal needs. These issues are further compounded by the lack of adequate toilet and washing facilities. One asylum seeker told us how there was only one shower, which he shared with residents from at least two floors. Another reported 24 people sharing one communal toilet on a different floor. 
a significant concern raised, which goes against reported home office statements regarding the standard and luxuriousness of the hotels used, is staff behaviour. Asylum seekers have reported being subjected to verbal abuse, racist comments and threats in some hotels. Now, one, this shows you that these conditions are not luxurious, which anyone will know if they've ever spoken to someone trying to claim asylum in this country. What makes me really depressed, though, is that point about staff behaviour. And I'm sure that the reason, you know, staff behaviour can be appalling in these types of places is not because, you know, the staff are inherently racist and evil, right? But you're in a society which is telling everyone, these asylum seekers don't deserve to be here. These asylum seekers are stealing our jobs. They're taking money from homeless people here. And also, it's in the national interest for them to have a horrible time. That's essentially what Robert Jenrick is telling us every day. It's in the national interest for these migrants to have a horrible, miserable time because that will deter other people coming. Now, if you are working in that hotel and you're hearing that, you know, day after day, minute after minute on stations like GB News or whatever, or on, you know, on BBC when it's a Tory politician talking, then are you really going to be thinking, oh, no, we should treat these people with more respect? You're proactively being told by the people paying you, by the way, the Home Secretary, that you should treat these people like dirt. And so is it a surprise that some of them do, right? Appalling. Let's go to some more of that report. It's all incredibly depressing. Issues accessing healthcare over and above those faced by the general population mean some asylum seekers in hotels are finding it difficult to find health help and support. Uncooperative and at times actively obstructive behaviour by staff in hotels were reported by asylum seekers who needed support in obtaining medical treatment. These issues and the lengthy time many asylum seekers spend in hotels, with the vast majority of survey respondents having spent at least six months at their hotel, inevitably leads to many suffering mental health problems due to the repetitiveness, monotony and lack of agency in their daily lives. Respondents to the survey expressed significant distress at their situation and some shared that they were experiencing depression as a result. There have been significant reports of suicide attempts. Now remember, this is the situation that Carol Malone is saying is luxurious. She's saying this is luxurious. Now, should we ask her to put up with this? Do you think Carol Malone would live in these conditions, in these luxurious conditions? Surely if they were luxurious, she'd be perfectly happy to. It'd be good. Let's uh, let's see if she'll do that. We'll do a reality TV show. Carol Malone lives in the luxurious conditions that migrants sent to this country or migrants arriving in this country are forced to live in. Of course, this is awful. It's not actually the worst of what happens when asylum seekers are put up for months in low-quality accommodation. Late last year, a teenage boy was allegedly raped by a man in his 30s at a hotel used to house refugees in East London. Another alleged sexual assault against a child is said to have taken place at the same facility. The two incidents were alleged to have taken place within weeks of each other at a hotel where 150 children were reportedly squeezed in alongside 250 adults. That is clearly not a safe environment. Last week, the BBC reported that investigations into child sexual abuse had been obstructed by asylum hotel staff. This story concerned allegations that a man had masturbated in front of a seven-year-old boy. The BBC report this. Officers were blocked from entering the East London Hotel and staff delayed providing CCTV, which was later automatically deleted, it is claimed. The provider, Clear Springs, said it has robust safeguarding processes. The BBC has also learned of a reported unrelated sexual assault in another hotel. Families of asylum seekers are frequently housed in the same buildings as single men who are also waiting for their applications to be processed. The BBC has been told that on the 30th of June 2023, a seven-year-old girl and her mother were reported to have witnessed a 34-year-old man intentionally masturbating in their presence. It is claimed that staff and security obstructed the police investigation when officers visited the hotel around three weeks after the incident. The hotel is run by Clear Springs Ready Homes, which has a 10-year contract to manage asylum seeker accommodation in England and Wales. Now, that 10-year contract, I think, is quite significant, right? And this is the I suppose the the conflict of interest or the system of disincentives, which I keep talking about, which is you've got these hotel companies who have these long-term, very lucrative contracts with the home office, but then the organization who is employing them, essentially, you know, who's who's paying for their service, the home office, actively keeps implying that they want them to treat the people staying there like dirt, right? So you're saying, we're going to give you this long-term contract. What do you think happens when asylum seekers say to the home office or someone on their behalf claims to the home office, look, they're getting terrible food, um, they're living in cramped conditions, there isn't, uh, uh, there isn't the facilities for this to be hygienic, they're being treated in a racist way. What do you think is going to happen? The home office, good, right? That's what we're paying them to do. We're paying them to treat these people miserably, right? So this is the reality of the situation we're currently living in and what Carol Malone says is a luxury.
Of course, it's a disgrace that the state makes anyone, whatever their migration status, live in these conditions. But in the next part of the Jeremy Vine clip, we see that sadly, some people believe Carol Malone's lies. Michelle in Dorset, you, you, can you see the barge from where you are? Uh, no, I don't actually live. I live in Dorset, but I'm just discussing the fact that I've been homeless for 12 years from I had a, got divorced. Oh, no. And this council, I've been left homeless. I've slept in a van. If somebody would have offered me, yeah. the oppor the, 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 offered me the opportunity to live in a barge with my children, I would have taken it. Yeah, I well, I'm sure you would have done. disgraceful. So, so what, what's up, upsetting you is that people are refusing to go on the barge, is that There's right? There's no money. Yes, exactly. They don't, we have paid. I, I've been forced to live back with my elderly mother, um, which is fine. Well, it's not fine at all, actually, to mm. be honest. But I'm in a situation where I don't have any alternative. There's no way that people can't even afford rents at the moment because rents are absolutely astronomical. They don't earn enough to be able to get a mortgage. We've paid our national insurance, our tax, yeah. and they are giving our money. Dorset are giving our money away to other people. It's not on. It's not on. You know, if you actually walk around Southbourne and Bournemouth and see the homeless people and the problem, and these people can't even get any help off the system. So what's so depressing, right? We've just shown you the facts, right? We've just shown you that what Carol Malone written is, is untrue. These people are not living in luxury. But what you heard there was... You know, a member of the public who seems to be having a very difficult time. I don't know if she read Carol Malone's article, right? I don't know if there's a, a causal relation here. But what you can see is someone who has completely bought this lie that the interests of the working class in Britain are opposed to working class asylum seekers arriving here, right? That completely, it was just encapsulated in that 60 second long clip, right? Let's watch the final part of it. You can imagine um, that Carol Malone was chomping at the bit to reinforce what the caller was saying. Michelle, yeah. this is where the resentment among people... You know, this country is not averse to migration at all, but this is where people become angry and resentful. Mm. When people like Michelle can't get a place to live, she's not looked after. Dorset councils are actually using some of the money they have to organise outings Chris, for Chris, final words. Migrants are not responsible for low pay, for homelessness. She never said anything. Not, no, no, I'm not saying, saying she has. Nonsense. But she we did. should be turning the real aim at this government which has created these problems all right and also issues like rents in dorset where second homeowners are ramping them up darling how would you respond to that i mean i my main response was to feel pretty goddamn sad just watching that that whole debate and that phone call that's what they want and it's very convenient to them because it and by them i mean conservatives right-wing people um, who are responsible for the creating the conditions that that caller exists in or has existed in, um, it lets them off the hook. Because now suddenly it's not about austerity. It's not about their policy. It's not about the way the government has treated poor people in this country for the past 10 years. It's about people who are being displaced from around the world. It's because, you know, they have the gall to, you know, still be alive after crossing the channel and, you know, needing sus needing basic sustenance to live. I mean, can you believe the audacity of needing food and needing to go outside? I mean, it's, it's you know, it's really taking the piss. But I think the, um, the, you know, Carol Malone in particular, you know, this is someone who unfortunately has been a voice in British politics and British media for a very long time. And the cynicism and hypocrisy that this woman is displaying right now beggars belief because 10 years ago, she was involved in the very same kind of rhetoric um, that she's engaging with now um, about the undeserving poor but she was targeting it towards people who are British, many of whom are white, but are claiming benefits, who are on welfare, which, by the way, especially now, every single person in this country, any working class person, any lower middle class person is one bad piece of luck away from having to be on welfare, um, to having to be on social security. But 10 years ago, Carol Malone was highly invested in the kind of politics that led to increased homelessness in this country, increased child poverty in this country as a result of austerity. And I just want to read out a little bit from um, an article that she wrote in 2013 in the height of the benefit scroungers moral panic. 
She said, and this was about um, people who appeared on that horribly exploitative show, Benefit Street. Um, I can't remember exactly on which channel, but this was her review of that show. She said, living on benefits is a lifestyle choice for the Flishers, which is a family that appeared on that show, who don't want to work and are too stupid to stop having babies. They can't afford and have no room for. But the tide is turning. Hardworking people are now angry about people like the Flishers. They're sick of having to slog all hours, not just to pay for their own kids' rent mortgage, but for scroungers like the Flishers as well, who with 25,000 a year are probably taking home more than they do. So the very playbook that she used against people like Michelle, who for whatever reason found herself in a really difficult position and needed social housing, or you know need, had children that she needed to take care of, but couldn't afford to because of declining wages or whatever, unavailability of suitable work. Carol Malone set the like is one of the people who created the conditions for the policies that removed social housing, that removed you know that created the two child benefit cap, that it has created the disenfranchisement of working class people in this country, and now she's using that exact same playbook against refugees and asylum seekers. And the idea that she is feigning solidarity, feigning defense of the very people that she spoke of in this same dehumanizing way 10 years ago is outrageous to me. And the only reason she is feigning any solidarity for people in that position is so that she can beat people who are essentially in an even more vulnerable position than them. All I can hope is that British people have slightly longer memories than Carol Malone seems to have and can connect the dots of the fact that the very same people who were doing up benefit scrounger moral panic 10 years ago are now doing the same thing against migrants and asylum seekers. And that fundamentally, when you support that politics of, again, deliberate cruelty and dysfunction, you are emboldening the tools that are then going to be used against you. And when the time comes, your whiteness and your your citizenship status is not going to protect you from that politics of cruelty and that politics of scarcity. Um, So yeah, the hypocrisy and dysfunction that has been on display in that clip, but also across the British media, um, frankly, beggars belief. Dahlia, thank you so much for joining me this evening. Thank you so much, Michael. And thank you for making me watch all of those wonderful clips of, uh, you know, the shining examples of our country. Really, what a great way to spend a Wednesday evening. Thank you, everyone, for watching this evening. Come back tomorrow for another live stream from 6pm. For now, you've been watching VAR Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.